Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. I tell you, uh, July is going by uh, very, very quick. Uh, hard to believe that um, it was two weeks ago this time uh, my wife and I were on vacation, but we were also in the process of finishing up our vacation. Seems like it's been a lot longer uh, since that uh, two-week span, but uh, our trip, though, was very well worth uh, the while, and um, I know I've uh, mentioned uh, to you all uh, about it to a degree, uh, but I, I do strongly recommend, uh, for those of you who have not been to Northwest Ohio, uh, it is very well worth the visit, uh, not just so much because it's along Lake Erie, but all the rich history, uh, most notably the uh, Great Lakes uh, Museum in Toledo, uh, the Marblehead Lighthouse on Lake Erie being Lake Erie's um, oldest uh, lighthouse, visiting uh, Kelly's Island, uh, Putin Bay on South Bass Island. All of those um, destinations or spots, I should say, are very well worth the visit. Um, they're hidden gems, in my opinion. But uh, would I go back and visit them again? Absolutely. But what I do know is that um, we have a lot of ground that needs to be covered in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode. To Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meggs in the War of 1812 by Larry L. Nelson. In this uh, particular uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn about um, how William Henry Harrison um, learns of the news of the uh, American defeat at the River Raisin in Michigan. We're also going to learn um, how General Harrison goes forward with this defeat, even though he was not present at the River Raisin, but we have to learn how he's going to proceed forward. We're going to learn about um, some twists and turns that General Harrison um, undergoes. Um, these uh, twists and turns are actually going to be for the better. Usually when we think of twists and turns, we think of both good and bad, and in some instances, nothing but bad. But the twists and turns that we're going to be learning about in this uh, podcast segment episode are actually going to be um, to Harrison's advantage. Now, when I was on the air last time, I remember um, at the very end of that uh, of the uh, previous night's podcast uh, talking about a rally cry called Remember the River Raisin. So many uh, soldiers were brutally um, massacred by um, Indian tribes. You know, the British said that they couldn't do anything uh, to stop the, um, the Indians from... Uh, from doing harm to uh, those in the uh, town or in the village of Frenchtown, I should say, or let alone they couldn't stop them from uh, hurting um, wounded American soldiers. Well, you know, you can say that all you want, but yet if you don't try to stop a problem from within, then, then what kind of example do you set? Well, I think that's sadly been the case uh, throughout uh, history um, in this world, I should say where there has not been enough from within um, to stop um, atrocities or incidents or um, uh, behavior that is uh, unbecoming uh, to not put a halt to it from within. Oftentimes we like to think of the uh, aggressors as the ones who cause all the problems to those whom claim to be innocent bystanders when in fact even those from the innocent party yes, can be seen to an extent as perpetrators, 
but yet at the same time those whom um, go about ex extracting revenge oftentimes don't always have a boundary as to how far the revenge goes. But uh, one thing it, that it is uh, fair to say is that uh, given that Tecumseh is the, uh, the uh, not just a leader but a prophet, he is not only trying to get um, people of his own, um, get his people from within not only to no longer adhere to the European ways of living, but also to return to um, normal ways of living, but also to do away with everyone that is an outsider whom does not share their uh, philosophical views or, or simply their ways of living. So this is a conflict that is uh, really about old versus new. Of course, you know, the Indians think the British have their side and, and they do, but we have to wonder how much longer would the British be able to um, have the Indians at their side before this is all said and done with. So there are a lot of um, what-ifs and a lot of uncertainties still, but the rally cry of Remember the Raisin um, really was a rally cry to remember those uh, men, most notably the Kentucky Volunteers, whom had sacrificed a great, a great deal of their, um, of their presence, knowing that they were going into harm's way, knowing that, yes, they held on for as best as they could for about 20 minutes only to be um, basically slaughtered. It doesn't make it right, but uh, basically the rally cry of Remember the Raisin, it was a rally cry that was meant to serve as a reminder of uh, not forgetting about those who uh, lost their lives and made uh, a sacrifice, but to keep their spirit alive by uh, keeping on the fight. So anyways, like I said earlier, we have a lot of ground to cover, and I think it's fair to say that it's time to get the show on the road. So let's be prepared for our first uh, leadoff question. Did General William Henry Harrison receive news of defeat at the River Raisin come evening of January 22nd, 1813? Well, that was, you know, the day of when it seemed like all hell broke loose for the Americans. You know, the British launched a surprise attack. You know, they were about an eighth of a mile from the American encampment. And to me, I was blown away at the fact that this answer is yes, that William Henry Harrison, folks, did receive news of the defeat at the River Raisin uh, the same day that the, um, that the actual defeat itself happened. Of course, little did he know that the following day there was going to be a massacre of those uh, American soldiers whom were severely wounded, left behind, and were not able to um, make the journey into Canada. Of course, you know, you, you have to wonder now, why weren't there any British soldiers that could have stayed behind and looked after them? I mean, I know it might sound odd to say, why would uh, the enemy want to be looking, why would the, why would the opposition want to be looking after in their eyes, the enemy, that is, those troops that are wounded. Who's not to say that if there were British soldiers um, protecting um, the American wounded that uh, did not make the retreat into um, Amherstburg, who's not to say that those British troops would have done their part or upheld their, um, 
their promise. In other words, they could have sat back and just allowed the, the Indians to massacre the wounded troops, which happened. So uh, so the bottom line is, is that, um, sadly, these uh, American troops were left to um, fend for themselves, basically live in a constant state of fear, only to... Um, to only to have endured the inevitable, not that is not only to be massacred, but to have their the uh, makeshift buildings that they were um, that they were uh, staying in to keep warm, or just for as means of comfort, only to go up in flames and and their lives are gone. So, yes, the news of the defeat came to the general, being General Harrison, as he was advancing with the leading group of the Northwest Army's right wing to an area north of the Maumee River Rapids. Well, I can't imagine being in General William Henry Harrison's shoes and not only learning of this defeat, but learning just how bad of a defeat it was. It's one thing for your army to get defeated, but, but to find out just how many men were uh, killed and wounded it go. I mean, as we learned from the previous podcast, it was well over a hundred. Uh, you know, five hundred at best were um, wounded, or just over five hundred. I think it was five hundred and forty-seven. I take it back. That were taken as prisoners. Three hundred and ninety-seven were killed, and we learned that five hundred and forty-seven being taken as prisoners that was sixty-five percent. So, <laughs> it, it's not a uh, pleasant outcome to say the least. But. Um, but I know for General William Henry Harrison, he has to be thinking to himself, how many men did escape? Did any men escape? And if so, just how many? It's probably fair to say that it might have been well under 100. It just so happens, folks, that 33, that's the number of American troops whom escaped the River Raisin battlefield on January 22, 1813, unscathed, unharmed. Can you imagine being one of those 33 men? Even if you escaped unharmed, with that is, with no physical injuries, you still have emotional scars that will not go away overnight. On the other hand, you do have to do what's uh, best to keep those uh, scars from getting the better of you because you still have, you still have to uh, fight for those whom have been taken prisoner. You still have to fight for those whom have died before you. Of course, we have to remember there's no such thing as being diagnosed with post-traumatic uh, stress um, disorder or what's called PTSD. So, I mean, we've got a ways to go before that ever comes about. But the bottom line is that um, to be one of 33 troops whom escaped the River Raisin unharmed, uh, that to me is a number um, that should not be taken lightly. Um, you have to wonder... Um, will these uh, 33 troops who did escape unharmed, can they still serve as an asset to uh, the American cause? Well, um, a, a fellow by the name of Major Elijah McClenahan of the Kentucky Volunteer Militia, he was the first to provide the earliest uh, reports of defeat at the River Raisin to uh, General William Henry Harrison. So that means, folks, that uh, Major Elijah McClenahan was one of the 33 um, uh, troops, or I should say officers, combined that did uh, survive uh, in terms of being unscathed, unharmed. Uh, the British forces, according to Major Elijah McClenahan, 
numbered between 1,600 to 2,000, including Indians. How many troops do you think are under General uh, Harrison's watch at this point in the game? I'll give you a number. It's between 800 and 1,000. The number is 900. So General Harrison, folks, has only 900 troops under his watch. Brigadier General uh, Winchester, he was the one that um, led the uh, capture of the uh, River Raisin um, settlement area. He thought that he had it pretty well made back on January 18th when the uh, British and the Indians retreated. He didn't think they were going to come back. Boy, did he underestimate them. Uh, Brigadier General Winchester did not even um, go about um, constructing um, fortifications, but we also have to remember, too, that he didn't have any tools or equipment. But don't you think he could have had some uh, guardsmen? Well, I mean, he did have some guardsmen out there. I mean, luckily the guardsmen that did notice uh, the British about an eighth of a mile from the uh, encampment, luckily he was able to fire a shot off and kill a British uh, soldier, which led others to um, waken up from their sleep, to wake up from their sleep and be prepared to go. But unfortunately, it was a little too late. So uh, Brigadier General Winchester was unaware that Harrison's troops were not far away from arriving to the River Raisin um, just a few days earlier. The sad part here, folks, is that had Brigadier General Winchester not gone directly into Frenchtown and retreated instead to the Maumee River, the outcome at Frenchtown might have been different. So in other words, it might have been better for Brigadier General Winchester to have never stayed at Frenchtown. He could have Basically, what he should have done was engaged in a, in a harassment strategy of trying to wear down the British and the Indians, and by doing so, um, engaging them in a guerrilla-style matter, irregular-style fighting, you know, engage in um, firing and then fall back, knock some troops and some Indians down, but basically try to engage in a harassment-type strategy that um, that that could buy you some time so that when you did make your move to Frenchtown with General Harrison, not only would the numbers have been better, but the outcome itself could have been a little different. There's always going to be those what-ifs, but that's what unfortunately happened with Brigadier General Winchester. The evening of uh, January 22, 1813, saw a council meeting uh, take place that involved General Harrison, Major McClenahan, and field officers whom all discussed on how best to proceed forward in the midst of the onslaught at the River Raisin. Well, there were several concerns, and rightfully so. Uh, one, uh, The concerns were high given the fact that, that British forces had found ways to navigate around uh, Harrison's uh, position to the south. Well, I should say that the concerns were high, that largely because uh, General Harrison and his uh, field officers, including Major McClenahan, were very uh, concerned that British forces could find ways to navigate around Harrison's position to the south, which meant that the enemy could attack the su supply lines from Sandusky, which is being in between uh, Toledo and Cleveland, 
leading to uh, separating the army from essential provisions, including troop reinforcements. So these, you know, anytime, you know, um, a council takes place, you, you know, you do get to weigh in your options. But no matter how many options are presented, you do have to think about the pros and the cons with all of them. So luckily, an agreement was reached, and it had broad, unanimous support. The agreement uh, that was reached upon um, was one that um, was one that would uh, allow General Harrison to withdraw his troops to an area south of the Maumee River, where he could join forces in artillery under the command of Brigadier General Joel Leftwich of Virginia, of the Virginia militia, I should say. So Jan January 23rd, which is the same day that the River um, Raisin Massacre happens, Harrison's troops recrossed the Maumee River and went onward to a spot on the Portage River, 18 miles south of the rapids, where he awaited uh, Leftwich's arrival. Now, whenever you all hear the word portage, um, I've heard it many of times, and some years back, oh, probably about five years ago it was, I decided to look it up. You know, I thought, you know, obviously it has to do with something with navigation and all, but when it comes to the term portage, it often refers to the word, it often refers to route. In other words, what route are you going to take along the river? Uh, what portage um, did um, such and such explorer take, or what portage did um, did uh, travelers uh, take from uh, point A to point B? So, whenever you hear the word portage, think of uh, the word uh, route. All right, here's our next question: uh, Did General Harrison have to contend with any unpredictable weather? in the midst of proceeding towards the Portage River? I think this, I think it'd be fair to say that the answer is yes. If anybody could be immune from ever having to contend with any unpredictable weather, all I can say is that they have sheer luck on their side. They probably are in the, to me, they might be in the, that elite 1% that just has sheer luck all the time. But yes, um, the weather itself you know, for the month of January, you would think it was flat-out cold. You'd think there'd be flat-out um, wintry uh, conditions, but given where General Harrison and his troops were, the weather, believe it or not, had been unseasonably warm for January, which led to heavy rains, th thus preventing any means of a safe uh, passage or entry from taking place. I've mentioned this before in other podcast um, topic discussions, and I'll mention it again. We have to be reminded of the fact that weather has often made or break an army's uh, well-being. In other words, weather alone has often been the savior for one end of a battle, or for one side of a battle, but often it has been um, the undoing for the other side. Weather sometimes has saved uh, an army from from the brink of collapse. You know, when I think of uh, how weather impacted an army's mission, I often think about George Washington's crossing on the Delaware River Christmas night of 1776. Basically, it was a mission that was victory or death. You know, the European 
procedures or um, policies were to have your soldiers uh, rested in the winter time and come spring be prepared to go uh, back into combat. Well, George Washington didn't have that luxury. His uh, army was on the brink of collapse. Uh, that New York uh, campaign was a disastrous debacle. Desertions were rampant. Morale was at an all-time low. Washington got a break. He got a break from a double spy, or from a spy uh, who gave him the exact location to launch a surprise attack from, being in Trenton. And so Washington took this man's advice, and, you know, his men... Um, sailed from, um, or uh, rode their um, Durham boats, or whatever boats they could find. Uh, of course, they they weren't um, motor-powered boats, folks, but they um, cross, uh, They went across the Delaware River in different sections. It took about nine hours to do all this, folks, but they did it, and they pulled off one of the most um, unbelievable uh, missions. Had it not been for this mission, in the midst of um, brutally cold weather, ice along the Delaware River, had it not been for this mission, uh, the Continental Army would have pretty much collapsed and the cause for independence from a, from a militaristic um, point of view would have been extinguished and our Declaration of Independence would never have really had any true significant meaning. The Declaration of Independence was able to uh, regain its meaning as a result of uh, Washington's uh, victories at Trenton and Princeton. So when I think of weather uh, saving an army in the time of crisis, I think of, uh, the battles of the battles of Trenton and Princeton from the American Revolutionary War. So, um, so yes, we have to be reminded that weather has often made or break, has often made or break an army's um, stronghold. But uh, between uh, January 23rd to the 24th, uh, the remainder of Harrison's army did make it to the destination spot for encampment in the midst of rainy conditions. More power to him. I think that's a good example right there of survival of the fittest. January 27th saw General Harrison request that all arms and ammunition of gathered troops, that is all troops assembled, be inspected. The evening of January 27th saw General Harrison hold a meeting with senior officers which involved going over plans for how every officer would conduct their leadership in case of a surprise enemy attack. This isn't bad, folks, because, you know, the British and the Indians have all the momentum right now. Uh, you know, we've already surrendered Fort Mat Forts Mackinac and Detroit. We've we're bat we got badly routed at the River Raisin. Michigan is completely in the hands of uh, the British and the Indians. And now uh, we're at a real standstill here. And we have got to, uh, re we've got to reinvent the wheel. And Harrison is smart. He's meeting with his officers and saying, look, we have, all of you have got to ha have some strategies in place as to how to respond in the event the enemy launches a surprise attack so that we don't get, um, so that we don't get trounced on. We've got to find a way to counter-respond, and we've got to be able to show the British and the Indians that, okay, we may not have the grandest army, but we, we've got to prove to them that we can put up a fight without, um, without uh, surrendering all the time. So, 
every soldier now is going to be required to sleep with his musket placed in his arms, including having a cartridge box placed under his head. That sounds crazy, folks, but you know what? You've got to be on guard, even if you are not on guard duty. If you're going to be asleep, that's one thing, but you need to have your musket by you, and you need to have your cartridge box by with you. In the event you get attacked, you need to be ready to go. You don't have time to go take a shower and put on your fine clothing and get every, get this and that. You need to have everything ready at your disposal to go on a moment's notice. Uh, January 30th of 1813, Brigadier General Joel Leftwich arrived with the remaining troops under him to the Portage River, which included uh, Captain Daniel Cushing's company of the 2nd Regiment of Artillery. The number of men now under Harrison's watch is now 1,700. He was at 900, now another 800 men have come. Not bad, he's just shy of 2,000, but it's in the right direction. So 1,700 represents the total number of men under Harrison's watch. The rain is still present, folks, uh, which has kept Harrison from going onward. But with the artillery that's come in now, this artillery is comprised of five 18-pound cannons, six six-pounders, and three howitzers, or howitzers. Now, how about um, a drastic break in, the, in terms of uh, weather change here? January 31st, the weather changed from rain to snow, just like that, folks, like a light, like a light switch turning on and off. Now General Harrison is able to advance his march onward to the Maumee Rapids, where they arrived February 2nd, but the journey itself had challenges. What challenges do you think now uh, Harrison's army would have faced? Do you think transporting 11 pieces of artillery is, a ch is enough of a challenge onto itself? Yes. So it's one thing to transport 11 pieces of artillery, how are you going to get these uh, heavy pieces of artillery transported? Well, the bad part is, folks, is that only one of the 11 pieces of artillery was mounted on a wheel carriage. But the other 10 pieces were transported onto something. They were transported onto uh, what are called carrioles. C-A-R-R-I-O-L-E-S. Carrioles. That's the way I'm pronouncing it. Otherwise, they're known as small sleighs. Okay, so, you know, to me, that's better than nothing. But what would happen if one of these pieces of artillery that you're transporting got stuck? In other words, it froze in the mud. How are you going to get this? How are you going to break the, um, the ice if it, now all of a sudden this carryall is frozen in the mud? Believe it or not, folks, soldiers, or I should say troops, had axes on them. Of course, when I think of axes, I'm thinking about, you know, chopping a tree down um, that can help uh, go about uh, building a fort or you chopping a tree down that might, where uh, parts of the trees uh, can be used for firewood purposes. But in this case, folks, axes were used to break apart ice. So... Without the uh, axes, folks, these um, 
what do you call it, these uh, artillery pieces would not only remain stuck, but talk about delaying your uh, movement from point A to point B. So thank heavens the troops had um, axes on them to where they were able to break the ice and they were able to uh, keep moving the uh, the necessary um, equipment, being these uh, 11 pieces of artillery. Thank goodness, uh, thank goodness to have um, extra provisions, because you never know when they come in hand, regardless of season and regardless of the weather. Uh, what did General Harrison proceed next with doing once arriving at the Maumee Rapids? He made his way to a steep shoreline, slope. And what I mean by a steep shoreline slope here, folks, is a bluff. He went to the steep shoreline slope via bluff on the south bank and went about ordering that a building, not just a building, folks, but how about a stockade, get fortified. What is a stockade, folks? I know most of you probably have heard the the term and probably do know what a stockade is, but I'm sure some of you may not know, and if you don't, I'm here to tell you what a stockade means. A stockade is an enclosure of palisades and tall walls made of logs placed side by side vertically with the tops sharpened as a defensive wall. Okay, this is a pretty... Um, radical um, concept here, but I have a good feeling it's going to work. It has to work. I, I don't think General Harrison has time for anything that could be seen as a failure, but he knows that he has to act quickly because he knows that he's on borrowed time. He knows that it could be a matter of time before uh, the British and the Indians could uh, launch a surprise attack and um, do everything there is to their abilities in decimating his army to the point where there might not even be a functioning U.S. Army. Could it be fair to say that what's going on in Ohio could possibly represent the last stronghold um, of this U.S. Army, given that um, we don't really have a true um, standing army, but yet the British and the Indians see us, see the American Army as a laughingstock? Well, I, I do believe that the tide is changing. It's changing bit by bit. But we have the right guy leading the way, being General Harrison. So, so uh, yes, General Harrison's um, going to um, decide that um, he, he knows that he wants to um, go about building a fort along this um, area, along the south bank of the Maumee Rapids. The uh, fort uh, will be named um, in honor of Ohio's governor, Return Jonathan Meggs. Okay, folks, Fort Meggs. That's for whom. Um, uh, that's for whom uh, it's named in honor of uh, Governor Jonathan Meggs, who is the current governor of Ohio. The location that Harrison chose for building uh, the fortified post or stockade was considered smart. How smart? Well, for one, um, the entryway to the Maumee Rapids all marked the westernmost ending point for troops, equipment, and provisions going westward 
via ship across the Lake Erie, across Lake Erie and up the Maumee River. The Maumee River uh, has some unique advantages. Uh, for one, it's shallow, meaning it's not deep. So if the Maumee River is shallow, that means it's not deep along the Maumee Rapids, which would enable General Harrison to monitor and control all supplies and provisions sent west into uh, the interior across the Great Lakes, thus still being able to defend the Northwest Territory from an enemy attack. He has really um, planned this out carefully, and obviously he's gotten uh, some very, he's obviously gotten a lot of high praise for this um, decision. Now, uh, given that the fort's going to be built along the uh, south bank of the Maumee River, um, why not the north bank? Well, the north bank of the Maumee River, it did give General Harrison the high ground, but what General Harrison has done here, folks, why this is better? Because he didn't put all of his eggs in one basket. General Harrison is staying put on the south side of the um, of the Maumee River as a means of properly better securing uh, lines for provisions and reinforcements. In other words, he doesn't want to take any risk of, risk of exposing um, his provisions uh, most notably his provisions, because if they are exposed, not only could the enemy um, attack and, say, destroy provisions, but also find a way to um, to coordinate an irregular-style attack that would also mean um, taking provisions uh, from Harrison to where he becomes depleted of uh, necessary provisions. So, so, yes, he is smart to stay put on the south side as a means of properly better securing the lines for provisions and reinforcements. As from a topography standpoint, all artillery, I should say batteries, all artillery batteries being cannons and, and howitzers, got elevated on rounded masses being mounds or moving above surfaces. Uh, whom got assigned the head task of designing to, su to supervising the work construction of Fort Meigs? How about a fellow named Captain Charles Grashit of the, of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers? Grashit is spelled G-R-A-T-I-O-T. Now, I need to look this up, and I probably should have done it before this uh, podcast segment episode, so... Uh, one thing I will need to do is that when I'm on the air again next time is uh, fill you all in with uh, what I'm about ready to say next. I know there is a fort in Michigan um, located somewhere north of Flint. And Flint is north of Detroit, but the fort is known as Fort Gratiot. Something tells me it could be named after uh, Captain Charles Gratiot. My hunches could be wrong but my hunches could also be right. So I'm looking at a 50-50 uh, scenario here. What I'll have to do is I'll have to look it up, and when I'm on the air again next time, I will let you know that answer. So yes, um, Captain Charles Grashit of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is has been assigned um, to uh, go about... Uh, he has been assigned the head task of designing to supervising the work construction of Fort Meigs. Uh, what I found interesting about Captain Grashit is that he is an 1806 West Point um, graduate, and he um, is the, um, the Northwest Army's chief engineer. 
he went about surveying the site where Fort Meigs would get built. Uh, the construction of the fort began in February, folks. The fort's, what do you think the fort's purpose really uh, was intended to serve, folks? It really was, it, it was aimed to serve as a supply depot, including um, games, strategical planning, uh, facility for future U.S. military operations into Canada. That's really Harrison's um, chief prize, is to not only retake Fort Detroit, but find a way to get into Canada and launch an attack on the British and Indians, basically force them into a, a retreat northward, get them not only out of Michigan, but into Canada, somewhere near the uh, Canada-U.S. Uh, line, but get them into Canada to where Harrison knows that he has an army that's at full strength capacity that can uh, take the... Um, that can take the fight north and onto foreign soil and be able to strike a blow. Uh, once construction of Fort Meigs uh, broke ground, did General Harrison send out scouting parties uh, to observe outlying to observe the outlying area? Uh, the answer is yes, and it's smart because just because you've just because you have um, determined where you can go about constructing a fort. You, ha you also have to be vigilant for, for what lies along the outlying areas. In other words, if you don't do this, then you are asking uh, for an ambush. You are asking to be um, caught off guard, and you, could, you might be asking to have your fort destroyed, set, a, set ablaze by the enemy. I mean, it's crazy, but it can happen. It has been known to happen. So... One scouting party came upon a person's body at an abandoned house. Um, and I'm just going to describe it in brief layman's terms. It was severely disheveled. That's as far as I'm going to go. Uh, the book um, that I read that we're talking about here um, described it in other details that I just think are a little too graphic. And I don't want to... Um, I don't want you all to go to bed uh, with uh, having any nightmares. I know that sounds childish, but um, but I think the best way to describe it here was that the um, the person's body that was discovered w was severely disheveled. Uh, not long after February second, um, General Harrison's um, forces got joined up with the Kentucky Volunteer Regiment, which included General Edward Tupper's brigade of Ohio militia resulting now in over 2,000 men strong. I tell you, Harrison's getting a big surplus of troops, and he's not taking it for granted, I can promise you that. On Monday, February 8th, 1813, uh, the, the scouting um, company or party returned to camp advising that an Indian war party of 200 strong was not far away. General Harrison uh was caught in the middle, given uh, militiamen's terms of enlistment. Um, how many months do you think militiamen had uh, for enlistment, for an enlistment period before it was about to expire? I'll say that it's less than 12 months, but the number is six. So militiamen were serving um, for up to six months. So for General Harrison... He's thinking to himself, look, yeah, I've got a lot of men here, but not everyone's going to stay on. I've got militiamen who are probably want, 
wanting to go home and tending to their farms, being with their families. we got to remember, folks, that even in 1812, 1813, it's probably fair to say that 90% of the American population is still living on farms. There's no true thing as industrialization just yet. So um, for most of these men, you know, yes, they have served their country, but they know that they need to get back home to their families and uh, go about living their lives. But at the same time, Harrison's got to find other incentives to keep, if he can't keep, he knows that there are going to be those whom are going to go home, that he probably knows that he can't uh, persuade to stay, but he's got to find ways to, uh, he's got to find uh, enticements, strategies to keep others from uh, leaving, because some will go, but some will stay. So um, for General Harrison, um, here's the first thing here. February 13th and onward, unfortunately, there were many militia um, militiamen uh, from regiments, most notably from Ohio and Kentucky, that um, are honorably discharged, uh, which um, leads them to uh, leave Fort Meigs. But Fort Meigs is now uh, protected more so by Virginia and Pennsylvania militiamen. General uh, Harrison proceeded forward by bringing in regulars, including a unit of Ohio militia from Fort Winchester at Defiance, to man outposts along the Aglaise and St. Mary's Rivers. 1,500 to 1,800 troops were sent onward uh, to Fort Meigs. Uh, General Harrison goes as far as ordering uh, Governor Isaac Shelby of Kentucky to have on standby 1,500 troops. On standby meaning that we're not going to be, we're not deploying you all just yet, but you have to be ready to go at any moment's notice once you get the call uh, that you are um, now being deployed. And there is a place in uh, Kentucky called Shelbyville, Kentucky, outside of Louisville, uh, named after uh, Governor Isaac uh, Shelby. Uh, what incident took place on the morning of February 16th, which raised eyebrows? In other words, you know, what incident did take place that could have raised a red flag, basically. Well, to me, this is definitely a red flag. People, you know, people come and go. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. It's a double-edged sword. Two strangers showed up. They showed up by taking an odd interest into Fort Meigs's progress. This involved asking questions from the fort's strength the overall strength of the fort, to the number of cannons mounted. If a stranger were to ask you, just how um, fortified is your fort? How many soldiers are there? How many uh, pieces of artillery are there? If you didn't know these individuals, you better think long and hard before just giving them information. You can't trust outsiders. Well, I mean, is it fair to say that even in today's world, not trying to sound negative, but even in today's world, we, we might not be able to trust everybody, especially if we haven't met people for the first time. So yes, these questions are red flags. The stranger's questions ultimately led them into General Harrison's office or, or into the presence of General Harrison, whom confirmed that they were spies. All right, kudos for General Harrison in foiling a plot. These two individuals were arrested, and Harrison 
given that Harrison himself knew recently that the River Raisin got reinforced with just over 600 British troops. So if Harrison knows that the if Harrison himself knows that the River Raisin has been reinforced with 600 troops and two suspicious men are asking questions left and right that uh, that uh, is that can be posed as a red flag then Harrison knows that these two spies have been sent out by um, British leadership to uh, perform a mission you know that's top secret but now that these two men have been arrested, this, to me, could be seen as a setback for the British. I mean, hey, spies are willing to risk it all, but it does come at a price, for better and for worse. Uh, what did General Harrison do next following the arrest of the British spy agents? He gathered everyone present at the fort by advising everyone there that an attack was imminent, which led everyone to do what was necessary in defense preparation. Okay, what when I say the number three here, what does that mean? That is the number of 18-pound cannons getting placed on batteries to having one 12-pounder be placed at the lower blockhouse with remaining 12 and 6-pounders supplied with powder and ball. No attack by the enemy being the British took place, but Harrison's troop forces folks did prevail by demonstrating their readiness in the event of an enemy surprise attack unto um into the event an enemy surprise attack unfolded, pardon me. <laughs> but yes, his troops did prevail, folks. This was a mock um drill procedure, but they prevailed. And it, it probably won't be the first time, and it might not be the last time, that they may have to prepare. But you better be prepared, because you, can, because you never know when the real thing will happen. Come early March um, 1813, what became a new concern for General Harrison? I tell you, it's, an, it's a barrage of concerns. But when you are a general, you have to take these concerns seriously, no matter how big or small they are. How about ice on Lake Erie beginning to thaw out? Okay. When the ice thaws out, that can be a good thing. But for the enemy, being the British, what can they do now? British forces could navigate more freely along Lake Erie and go about launching a major attack against Fort Meigs. If that's not um, a concern unto itself, uh, the spring thaw, along with steady rains, to troop activity around Fort Meigs resulted in marshy grounds becoming more swamp-like on top of reserves like firewood becoming all the more scarce. Seems like now we're doing a 360 reversal. General Harrison, though, has had to go south to Cincinnati. Why is he leaving? Turns out that he has family that's not doing well. Well, luckily he doesn't have far to go, but he also doesn't have an airplane, so it's going to take him a few more extra days to get from Northwest Ohio all the way down to Southwest Ohio, being that Southwest Ohio is not far from the Ohio-Kentucky-Indiana line. So who's uh, left in, who's filling in for General Harrison? Uh, Brigadier General Joel Leftwich. Um, Brigadier General Joel Leftwich is no, is no William Henry Harrison. He lacks the same authority that General Harrison displayed. 
General Leftwich has pretty much allowed, Brigadier General Leftwich has now allowed troops under his command not only to stay in their confines all day, but other officers, most notably a Captain Krogan, Captain Bradford, and Langham, did not like this at all. They voiced, they vehemently voiced their opposition about Leftwich's uh, troop conduct, only for Leftwich himself not to do anything about troop breakdown. There's always, it always seems like in history that there's always one officer within a larger um, regiment or a company that isn't always on the same page as the other officers are. There's always that one officer that it's, oh, I, me, myself, and if my, if my troops want to behave like this, then I'll let them do that, but I don't want to be held accountable. So it seems like uh, Brigadier General Leftwich is this uh, lone officer here. Uh, by mid-March, multiple reports from civilians and prisoners, not just civilians, folks, but prisoners, are now bringing information to um, officers and soldiers about um, these are imminent warnings that a British attack against uh, that a British attack along the Maumee Rapids is um, is possible. Now, did General Harrison learn of uh, Brigadier General Leftwich's um, lackadaisical um, attitude? Uh, yes, he did. And did he see to it that Brigadier General Leftwich be relieved of his duties? Yes. Kudos to Harrison here. While this did take place, the biggest concerns revolved around arrival of reinforcements whose arrival into Fort Meigs would not come until mid-April. Why is that? Because of recent inclement weather. One um, uphill um, challenge after another, but it seems like General Harrison has really prevailed every time. He doesn't live in fear, but he also knows that he can't take these um, concerns lightly. Uh, it seems like he is doing everything he can to be one step ahead of the game. The majority of the militiamen whose enlistments were about to expire. Here's some good, ne good news here, folks. This is even um, better news. So anyways, the majority of the militiamen whose enlistments were about to expire agreed to stay on until reinforcements had officially arrived. Most notably, um, the Pennsylvania militia agreed to stay on. Uh, Brigadier General uh, Joel Leftwich, he and his uh, Virginia militia actually left. They did. So uh, the Pennsylvania militia has stayed on. So uh, April 8th, here's some unfortunate news here, folks. This is a, um, this is a case where, yes, this happened, and this also ought to be a reminder of what can happen when you accidentally let your guard down because it did happen so let's find out about what did happen april 8th of 1813 saw a seven-man work crew leave fort meggs by going 400 yards up the river to gather timber okay uh there's nothing wrong with that they are um they're not goofing off however some of the men left their muskets placed against a tree close by you know, I know that you can only carry uh, so much with you on hand, 
But if there's one thing you cannot let go of, is a musket. Why? You've got to defend yourself. You don't know what could um, be behind you. You don't know who could fire at you from a distance, harass, you know, you don't know where the enemy could be lying. The enemy could launch a, a surprise attack, harass you uh, to where they fire and fall back with their intentions. Okay, if there's seven men on the opposition, that they can knock two or three down to the point where um, the other four retreat only to leave um, valuable provisions behind, like muskets and perhaps papers containing sensitive information. Anything is possible. But the, the sad part is, is that some of these uh, men left their muskets placed against a tree close by, only to be spotted, folks, by 15 Indians. Talk about being outnumbered. Well, one of the men got shot and kill and was killed the other two were taken as prisoners that means just shy of 50 percent have been um either captured or killed by the enemy now um the um, american forces when they learned about what had happened by those whom got away they did um, launch a pursuit or a chase of the indian raiding party uh, but they had no luck, and they uh, they um, came back to the fort. And, and maybe on one hand that was smart, because if they had gone, say, further than five miles, they might not have come home alive. Uh, April 12th saw General Harrison return to the Maumee Rapids, knowing full well that an enemy attack was very likely to occur sometime soon. April 18th, a spy ring party returned from the River Raisin, bringing on hand three Frenchmen whom advised that the British mission on Fort Meigs had begun and that the fort itself could expect an attack sometime within 10 to 12 days. You know, just over a week it could be, or it could be just shy of two weeks until this attack happens. Tecumseh, who is, you know, the prophet, he is already in Detroit. And what is he doing, folks? Well, he is trying to encourage everyone that he can um, draw attention to to join his cause. Indians, those whom we would still like to think of as loyalists, a term from the American Revolutionary War um, era, you know, uh, say Americans, you know, living in the Michigan Territory who now might feel that, that a change in allegiance isn't such a bad thing. Tecumseh is threatening, he's also threatening everyone with ramifications for failure in participating. So in other words, if you don't join my cause, I'll see to it that your uh, property is burned, and I can also see to it that you and your families are killed as well. I think it's fair to say that the River Raisin Massacre, no, nobody was spared. Uh, but history has shown us that even before um, this war, I mean, it, it dates back uh, to the time when the first uh, wave of Europeans arrived into the New World. Uh, it happened uh, many of times when the English first came, most notably into Jamestown, and when they, um, when Captain John Smith led uh, voyages up the, um, he led voyages, um, numerous voyages along the Chesapeake Bay to uh, learn more about the terrain not only of the Chesapeake Bay itself, but uh, 
but where other Indian tribes were living, given that the Powhatan Confederacy uh, numbered just shy of like, it was hovering just between 14 and 15,000. Uh, that's how big the Powhatan Confederacy was. But even John Smith himself um, saw just um, the tents. Um, he, he either had heard about it or witnessed um, tents um, fighting take place between his own people and other Indian tribes to where um, both sides committed terrible atrocities against one another. But, um, but as for uh, Tecumseh, he is threatening everyone with all the ramifications that will come about if they fail to participate in um, return in um, seeing to it that um, that the old ways of life uh, will persevere over this um, fake way of living that um, has been brought on by uh, the invasives, being the Europeans. By the time Fort Meigs was totally built, uh, the fort in 1813 had become the largest wooden-walled military structure post in North America. Fort Meigs alone comprised of 10 acres, including two earthen powder magazines, the quartermaster's building. Along the stockade, there comprised of five artillery batteries with 18, 12, and 6-pound cannons and howitzers. The fort housed 1,100 men, but what I find is the most important of it all was that the firing of two guns or one cannon was seen as the ultimate signal to call the entire camp to alarm, to alarm all in the fort to be required to move into battle stations at once. Imminent attack. Be ready to go. Now is that time. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, topic um, or this podcast segment episode. And before I go, and I know that I will uh, make sure to mention some more about it in other uh, podcast uh, episodes uh, for this topic that we're on. But uh, when my wife and I did visit uh, Fort Meigs on our trip two weeks ago, it was very well worth visiting. And I would strongly recommend any of you whom are uh, big uh, military history buffs to visit the fort. You can also learn more about it through the um, program series called Guns Across the Lakes about the uh, Northwest Campaign in the War of 1812. Um, if you go to YouTube or just you know type it in, uh, Guns Across the Lakes, it also uh, talks about the, the River Raisin Massacre, uh, also uh, about Fort Wayne that we talked about from the uh, previous night and um, Forts Mackinac and Detroit. Uh, I could go on and on, but it is very well worth it. Uh, when I'm on the air again next, folks, we're going to learn more about when um, exactly the British uh, will go about launching this attack against Fort Meigs. That'll just be one of, uh, of, of a handful of things that we will be learning about in the next uh, podcast segment episode. But again, thank you for your time. As always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all again soon. Take care for now and stay safe.